Eldarion was king, king of Numenor, of the Edain, and of the land of the star, and of the gift. His daughter, Ancalime, was to be his heir. Before Aldarion's rule, the law prevented such a feat, but of the things Aldarion decreed, the potential for his daughter to one day rule Numenor was first among them. And Aldarion would rule long, decade after decade would pass, and the shadow in the east remained hidden. Gilgalad's warning to Numenor, alas, was too late, or too early. Too late for the power that hated Numenor had already waked, too early for the time was not yet ripe for Numenor to show its power and to come back into the battle for the world. Despite this, Numenor long prepared, growing in strength and number of arms. The haven of Vinyalonde in Middle-earth expanded further inland, and its shipyards grew year by year, knowing that when this shadow showed face, Numenor would be ready. Come time, Aldarion would bequeath the scepter to his daughter, Ancalime, who would become the first ruling queen of Numenor, and at last Aldarion's reign had ended. He would be long remembered for the mariner, the captain, the king who ensured the friendship between the Edain and the Eldar. And Kalime would often visit her father's tomb, embracing the hard truth that she was now charged with the responsibility of the island, and that the Lord Aldarion's part had been played in history. And so she now would need play hers, whatever it would entail. For the present, that entailed seeing to it that Numenor would remain prepared for the Shadow's inevitable resurgence. Yet neither the Edain nor the Eldar knew when that time would arise. Each nearly invisible thread in his seamless cloak was crowned with a gemstone of different color, a marriage of Feanorian metalwork and Telerian tailorwork. He wore sigils and crests from Gondolin, Doriath, Nargothrond, Himlad, and Valinor. His name remained singular, even though it was commonplace among his people to be named so for the work they fashioned with their jewelcraft. Yet his lineage and his birthplace shifted from time to time, wherever the need arose to seek a safer space and a familiar family. The schools in which he learned his craft were helmed by masters as prescient as the precious stones and metals they taught to melt and shape and fold and mold and convert into objects of great power. He was the last of his house to remain in flesh on Middle-earth with knowledge of what Feanor had accomplished in Valinor and had brought to the darkened shores. He was aware of the need for keeping the knowledge of it as dissimilar from himself as possible, inheriting the talents from his father Kurufin, but not the temper of his infamous grandsire. To the peoples of Middle-earth, the Feanorians were dragon-like in their determination to challenge the dominion of Morgoth, but they were also known to kindle the fires of vengeance that they engulfed themselves in, resulting in many quakes 
and many tests from the thrones of Therangoradrim. He often recalled the forces of the Dark King dominate the lands he sought refuge in, and the sieges he had survived. He had lost much in his perilous journey to his present in Eregion, but he held the memory of Irendil the Mariner fiercely. He often recalled the flashes of the Silmaril thousands of leagues high in the thundering skies as it smote and Caligon the Black upon mountains of malice, condemning the countries of Beleriand to the depths of the sea. He wished to recreate that light, to wash Middle-earth with hope and healing and happiness once again. He was a creator of many charms in the various caverns, courts, and chasms he worked his craft in, yet none had managed to even remotely reach the majesty of the Silmaril. He was divided between his passion, his purpose, and his pursuit, and he did not know which path to follow without tearing himself further apart from who he was before. His recognition of himself had turned fainter by the century, and many millennia later he could only remember mere glimpses of Valinor, Impressions of its blessed valleys played second fiddle to the wailing wrath of the wars that had passed. He treasured the nascency of Amon, and restlessly tinkered with the ores that recreated those faint memories in the fairest of cutlery, jewelry, mechanisms, and towers in Eregion, recapturing even the reflection of starlight in the icy paths of the Helkaraxe. Surrounded by history and amplified by ambition, Celebrimbor and his skilled smiths set to work at sunrise, and labored until the first sight of the moon, studying the properties of light and its potential to turn things right. As days turned to nights and months stretched to centuries, Celebrimbor continued at his craft, as overcome with obsession as any dwarf in the dungeons of Duerodelf. As a result, his people in Noldor had meagerly sustained their Feia through the light of the gems they sold in the bejeweled bazaars of Eregion. He was aware that it was not enough to prevent their fading, and that once they faded, they would be rid of Froa, but not of life, wishing for death, wandering in the barren lands in search of an escape to Valinor from the unseen world. He wrestled with the thoughts that ran through his head as he kept at his pursuit akin to an alchemist aching for the elixir. Yet with every strike and every polish, he grew restlessly despairing. Celebrimbor. The well-known whisper graced his earlobe, astride a wave not of this world, bringing him strange tidings once again. The appearance of this emissary forbade the impeccable mirrors of his stately residence from capturing any reflection. Whatever you see is destiny, and you are the only one who can create it. How am I to be sure that I am up to this task? Who am I to the Valar? Do you know what is written in the scrolls of the Ainur? Why... He steadied himself before he angered the great powers. These questions had long lingered upon the cusp of his lips, but akin to the ships in Mithlon that were named after him, they never sought the shores of reassurance that were now brought to Eregion by the Emissary. Celebrimbor reflected upon that tryst years after the sundial in his foundry was robbed of time by the sheen of this consul from Amman. In those moments, even the hint of aging had faded, and in its place was a promise of preservation. The joy first envisioned in the music of the Ainur had once graced these valleys that you now call home, even if the Valar tasted the bitterness of discord soon after. The fair-tongued friend of the elves in Valinor had spoken to him at length. 
Even though the furor of Melkor has imbued the doom of these lands with persevering darkness, Middle-earth is neither forsaken nor forlorn. What had shone will shine again, and through the Gwaith Ymir Dane, the shining will remain unsullied in its healing. You, descendant of he who preserved the light of the trees in stone, have been chosen by the Valar to inspire the healing of Middle-earth. You are Telperimpar. You are Tylepinquar, the last hope of your people to invent an intervention for their fading. A title almost forgotten was ushered to the surface of his thoughts. The graces of the great powers were gifted to the host of the jewelsmiths for a purpose, and it is you who bears the responsibility, O champion of Tulkas. The emissary reminded him. For a moment, a stone table appeared before his eyes, bearing a spiral of nineteen rings, and a light at its very center, foreign to his experience, yet as familiar as his feelings towards Feanor drew him towards greatness. Through this wisdom of Aule, you will direct the winds of Manwe to calm the fire, and channel the waters of Olmo to soothe all that is scorched. You will cast the brilliance of Varda across all blight, and the seeds of Yavanna to fields unnourished. Your craft will inspire the dreams of Ermo in the people of Middle-earth, and guide them with the swiftness of Orome towards the mercy of Nienna. You will weave the judgment of Namo through the threads of Vaire, and with gentleness of Este render these lands ever young like Vanna herself, so that all the children of Iluvatar may dance as Nessa did in times of unblemished bliss. By the courage of Yerendil was this blessing bestowed upon you. The whisper continued, Will you not triumph for the sake of your kin? Celebrimbor, he was called, and he knew he had to live up to his name, for it was also a name of his grandsire, and no one had yet come close to greatness as had he. Only I am capable of this creation. His smile reflected the true nature of his heart, as it turned with pride to proceed with his progeny. And through me will creation survive the despairing decay to recreate Valinor upon Middle-earth. He was ready to celebrate their victories and partake in their parades and inspire generations of elves, dwarves, and men to conceive objects of pure light. These objects, he believed, could serve all the elves of Middle-earth, and in them was goodness so great and glamorous that the very conception of darkness would vanish in fright. The voice was heard no longer, the basket of boon was full, and Celebrimbor had reached the end of his long journey at last, discovering the catalysts that would turn his fame immortal by infusing jewels with power. Here was a chance for him to reclaim the honor of all those bound to the oath of Feanor, even though he had not sworn it and put an end to the suffering of all Middle-earth, once and for all. Hail, Anatar, the Lord of Gifts. The Myrdane heralded in the distance. Celebrimbor turned once again to the entrance and youthfully declared, Let us begin.
Narvi beheld the throne, something that surpassed in beauty anything he had ever conjured through his toils of smithing, something unrivaled by any work of elves or men, and of a beauty that only the dwarves of Khazad-dûm could comprehend. Before it stood a dwarf, grey-bearded yet young, wise yet unwrinkled, stone-faced yet kind. Durin, as Durin was long ago when he beheld the Miramir, crowned by the seven stars, he gazed towards the high stone wall to the rear of the throne, carved upon it a hammer and anvil. Durin spoke. From the peaks of Zeraxigil to depth of the lowest deep, our kindred have endured, and there our greed become our doom. No pity of Aule will save us in the end. Durin, prodded the dwarven smith, this mithril has all but kindled the fires within your halls. Now all thought is bent towards the great world elf, and the Hadhadrond. They now speak only in reverence about the fabled halls of Durin. Why doth the Eldar now dwell so near the great Hithaglir, if not in admiration and envy of the rumored glittering silver of Khazad-dûm? Mithrilis held in high regard, spoke Durin, lord of the Khazad, turning from the throne and walking to Narvi. And even the fruit of the most hard-won labors can be envied by those who do not bear the consequences. Yet the Khazad do bear the consequences. So I say to you, Narvi, greatest of craftsmen dwelling within Durin's halls, the further we delve, the more vigorously we mine, the more we risk the stability of our hard-won kingdom. And I cannot risk that, Narvi, not even for the brightest jewel in the lowest deep. Forgive me sighed Narvi, as if he had conceded the argument, yet he continued, But not only would the glittering silver benefit the sons of Aule, it would too invigorate the very children of Eru, the One. From the elves in Eriador, under the rule of Gilgalad of Linden, the tribes of men to the east, mightiest among these Rune, and of the elves in Greenwood under Orifer at the Amunlag. Each of them would benefit greatly from even just a small sample of what the mines of Khazad-dûm have to offer. Greed will become them, too, spoke the dwarven lord, recalling the trivial history of the dwarves. They will be undertaken by the very goldlust as was the dwarves of Nogrod long ago, who seized Nauglamir and the Silmaril set within it. That greed brought them to their doom at the hands of the company of Beren, and it will do the same to any who let that desire overcome them. Yet some wish to use Mithril for good, pleaded Narvi. To prosper and preserve, as do the Khazad. Think of what may become us were we to mine, armor stronger and lighter than any, and weapons unbendable and as sharp as a dragon's tooth, forges hotter than the last fruit of Laurelin. How could you not want that for our people? You seem to have more in mind than just our people, observed Durin. What else drives your hunger if not greed? What do you yet hide? Narvi at first was silent and still, as if he was carved of stone. Durin placed himself at his throne, letting his arms fall upon the golden armrests, looking down at Narvi. I was approached by my friend from Eregion, a smith as am I, Celebrimbor, answered Narvi. He sought spare quantities of jewels in Mithril. From what I gathered, the Gwethimir Dane are embarking upon some form of enterprise, driven by the hope of amplifying the beauty of Middle-earth to match that of Elvenholm in the West. 
Alinor. And you believe we ought to aid them? Interrogated the king. What offer do they pose to make such equitable? The prosper of a greater western gate for our halls, with the aid of Celebrimbor, whose works all of Elvendom admires. With it our people become united, and the gate a symbol of the alliance between the Khazad and Eregion. If Mithril is the price to pay to achieve this friendship, then shan't we pay it? What seems little cost may prove far more. Yet as you say, the Khazad have endured long, facing far greater cost than that of greed. Why tremble now? That is a foolish folly. Don't overstep your bounds, Smith, warned the king. For in the end the decree is mine to enact, and the foolish folly would be to act otherwise. Forgive me. Narvi retreated a step and bowed. A great silence followed, but at length the king spoke slowly. Leave me. I must ponder on the matter. Narvi smiled and bowed, promptly leaving Durin alone, and all became quiet save the slow breathing of the king. Durin was ever weary of what greed could become of their people. He knew the histories of the dwarves of Nograd, whose greed forever abstained them from friendship with the elves, and he knew Middle-earth was still a fragile, virgin land, with much yet uncovered, but Durin himself was the king, the very reincarnation of the mightiest of the seven fathers whom Aule fashioned from rock, and within him he knew how advantageous an alliance with the elves of Eregion could be, so why could he not bring himself to do it? Even Durin, lord of the Khazad, knew no answer.